Today on the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing, on the 10-year anniversary of his passing, we look back at a legendary figure in wrestling in New England and around the world, Walter Killer Kowalski. Somebody who, Mike, we wouldn't be doing this podcast and we probably wouldn't have done anything else in wrestling had he not come here to the New England area. Very, very true. And wrestling historian Sheldon Goldberg will be here to help us break down Walter's legacy as a wrestler and a trainer. Plus your promo about nothing a little later on and so much more. But first, tell him, George. I think I can sum up the show for you with one word. Nothing. Wrestling fans, there are millions and millions of podcasts out there, but there's nothing like this one. Do you ever just get down on your knees and thank God that you know me and have access to my dementia? This is the Wrestling Podcast about nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Welcome to the Wrestling Podcast about nothing episode one, two, three. A production of Crackpot Podcasts. My name is Mike Crockett. I'm a longtime independent wrestling referee in the Northeast, currently on an extended hiatus from the ring. And joining me, as always, is a veteran of the New England Independent Mat Wars, now a Ring of Honor wrestler, the immovable, the impregnable Kingpin Brian Malonis. Hello, Michael. How are you feeling? Feeling great, or am I? <laughs> we are recording this before the big showdown with the Bullet Club. I know. I could. Uh, by the time this drops, I could be a world champion. You could be talking to a world champion right now. The folks at home could be listening to a world champion. How confident are you feeling right now? <laughs> I'm 100% confident, Mike. Why would I be anything else but? There you go. Look at the size of me. Look at the size of them. That's what professional <laughs> wrestling is all about. I'm the odds-on favorite in the match. <laughs> if this is 1987, <laughs> you guys are destroying them. I love how, uh, you know, if, if we win these things, uh, you know, if we have uh, we have already won these things this past Saturday night, you're going to have a lot of egg on your face. You're going to be sounding awfully stupid on this podcast as people listen on Monday morning. You have a lot to do with eggs, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. Well, as I mentioned, this is episode 123, Brian, episode 123 of the podcast. And in that vein, I have to make a correction from last week. We talked about the referee in NXT who had the moment of the night when he told Johnny Gargano, wipey boogie. Mm-hmm. His name is Eddie Orengo, not Eddie Ortega. I apologize. I, I'm supremely embarrassed that I uh, stated the wrong name of a wrestling referee. I am shamed. I am shamed. I am shamed. I apologize. Are you ostracized from the refereeing community I now? think I may be. <laughs> We're going to have to do a, a referee podcast to make up for it. Didn't we already do that once? We Good did God. way back in the day. Oh, again? <laughs> this would be a perfect episode to do it, uh, episode one, two, three. But uh, I think what we have planned today, that puts... That referee stuff way in the background. Yeah, I, I agree. But, I mean, you're downplaying the magnitude of this episode because, I mean, really, I think any episode out of the archives probably puts out a referee one to, to shame. Even the one, like, Bill Neville was featured on. Oh, gee. <laughs> Reviving old old robberies. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, Bill Neville, I wonder if he's been to BrianMalonis.com. I don't know. I don't know. Is he, is he bitter we left them in the dust? 
<laughs> the NAI guys, the new agent side. No, those guys are doing great. But uh, hopefully he goes to BrianMalonis.com and picks himself up a nice T-shirt. There's a number of different designs. There is. You're responsible for three of them. Thank you. Probably explains why they're not selling. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, the Mastodon T-shirt is the one I didn't do. Yes. Then there is the Mega Malonis shirt, the original Kingpin logo in a new color, and, of course... The Curtain Jerker WPAN t-shirt. The official t-shirt of the wrestling podcast about nothing. It's a good thing you're not relying on the uh, sales of the Curtain Jerker t-shirt to feed and clothe uh, our kid. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, enough of that. (laughs) Enough of that. Has has the test come back yet? It has not come back. It takes like two weeks. Oh, okay. So next week we'll have the results of the paternity test. (laughs) We'll be heading to Maury. (laughs) (laughs) I told you. I'm confident. I'm going to be doing the Not the Father dance. We'll film it and put it on... uh, Put it on our social media. We'll see about that. <laughs> uh, also, you can go to the WPAN.com. That is the WPAN.com, the official website of this podcast, where you can find out how to subscribe. You can listen to the episodes directly on the website. Plus, there are bios and photos of our illustrious careers, uh, you know, us at various different weights. You can follow us <laughs> through, through our weight loss <laughs> journey and weight gain journey. Hey, I'm on the, you know. I'm on the straight and narrow. You're on the track? It's a a Project uh, MSG. There you go. Project MSG. Yeah, I mean, lots of Chinese food. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. No, 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 no. So go to the WPAN.com for all that stuff. No nudes. Not yet. I mean, I I showed you, uh, you know, some messages I've been getting lately, Mike. I don't know. (laughs) If the offer's right, there might be some floating out there. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Or you can go to the Putting Over Podcast Facebook group. No nudes there either. Please, uh, you know, don't let that deter you. The thought of Brian Malone's nudes. Go to the Putting Over Podcast Facebook group. Facebook.com. Put in the search bar, Putting Over Podcasts. Come join us and talk about wrestling podcasts. Mike, I just realized I was holding the microphone low again. I'm, I'm sorry. I just made myself uncomfortable again. Don't worry. Oh, my goodness. Well, things are all better now. <laughs> Good luck editing all the static out. All right. Uh, Brian Malone's, the anniversary is coming this Thursday. August 30th, that is 10 years since the passing of Walter Kowalski, and we have done a number of episodes, well, two to be exact, three actually, if you think about it, because one was a two-parter. Uh, we talked about the founding fathers of New England wrestling. Episode 30, we talked about the Boston bad boy, Tony Rumble. Episodes 60 and 61, we talked about MoFo Steve Bradley. Two guys who really had a lot of influence in New England wrestling, but no one, I mean, there's no question, no one can deny it, no one had more influence on the New England wrestling scene than Killer Kowalski. No, I, I mean, it's 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 inarguable at this juncture. I mean, uh, even the fellows that we talked about, the reason they you know, they were able to do what they did was because of the foundation that, that Walter had laid. Right. He is like the the top of the mountain. He is on Mount Rushmore. His face is bigger than all the others. Yeah, yeah. He's the George Washington, right? Is that is George Washington have the biggest face on the real Mount Rushmore? I don't know. I think maybe that just might just be closer in the picture. Maybe. I, I haven't been there. Yeah, so you, you we should talk to Todd Sinclair. He's been there. <laughs> yes, he has. He's yes, top. He, has. he was there for ten minutes, right? <laughs> just probably just as a snap a picture, and <laughs> <laughs> he says, "You just look at it. You go." Well, that's it. And you get in your car and leave. <laughs> it's not much in the area, I guess. It's not a big uh, festival surrounding the whole thing. Not really appointment uh, viewing for me. I, I don't really have any strong desires to go see Mount Rushmore. 
let's get back to the uh, matter at hand. Walter Kilikowalski. I mean, I thought his name, uh, his legal name was Vladek Kowalski. But then I went on Wikipedia and it said his birth name, his name at birth was Edward Vladislaw Spulnik. Interesting. Which kind of blew my mind. If it's on Wikipedia, it's got to be true. Thank you. Nothing false can be on the internet. And he was born in 1926, October 13th, 1926. And there's no one who doesn't have a a funny anecdote or or a story about meeting Walter, being around Walter. He's such a, a big figure in New England wrestling. I mean, anyone in New England in that time and involved in wrestling was around at some point killer kowalski what was your first time meeting walter i i used to i mean i used to go with a friend of mine who trained at kowalski's and actually sit and watch class and walter was still at that point still a little bit active with the training but mike hollow had been you know taking over the the lion's share of the training but so for the most part walter would stuff to the side and he occasionally would yell when something you know <laughs> something, oh shit yeah, fake Fake. Fake. <laughs> this is if somebody like did like a drop down or something along those lines. So, so I mean, actually just sitting next to him and, and being scared absolutely shitless, um, you know, because one, he's a he's a mountain of a man, and, right? And and two, it's Killer Kowalski. It's one of the biggest legends in the history of the business. Being a, a pro wrestling fan, growing up. You know, uh, obviously, I was I came along much later than Killer Kowalski. You know, and, and and I wasn't actively watching his career, but he's somebody who you knew. You knew the name Killer Kowalski. It was, and, and then later on in the '90s, you knew he was the guy that trained Triple H. Right, and you talked about sitting next to Walter. My memories of going to the school, I would go to the school as well with friends of mine that had signed up, and you know, just observe uh, like you did. And I just remember Walter's white chair. There was one chair, one folding chair. It was white, and it sat just there by itself, and that was Walter's chair. You didn't sit in Walter's white chair. <laughs> and if you did, if, if the, it would always be great when someone new would come in and see the chair there and just sit down in it because what Walter would do, he'd walk up behind the person sitting in the white chair and just pull the chair from under them. <laughs> they go right on his ass. Whenever someone new came in, it was always great to see, maybe he'll sit in the chair because he pulls that chair. No one sits in Walter's white chair. And of course, everyone knows, I mean, I mean us especially, but maybe not everyone knows, but he was a strict vegetarian. Yes, that god-awful... Carrot, carrot juice. juice concoction that he would just always have with them. Yeah, it'd always and, be sitting under his white chair, and he was always more than willing to share if you if you <laughs> if you wanted to try it. And he, uh, did you ever hear like when he would tell like the, do you know what you're eating when you when you when you when you eat meat? You eating flesh, yeah, dead meat, yes. <laughs> dead animal flesh. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. So he would definitely preach the virtues of uh, being a vegetarian. And I worked at a supermarket in Reading, and I think he lived in Stoneham, but he had a P.O. box in Reading, and it was right down the street from the supermarket where I worked. So Walter would come into the supermarket, and you know he knew me by face. I'm not sure he knew like my name or anything like that, but he'd always say hello and head right back to the produce department. <laughs> and I worked at the front end at that time where you know everyone checks out. And then I moved to the deli department cutting the meat so i didn't see kowalski as much once i moved over to the deli department <laughs> no i would imagine that you, you didn't i don't <laughs> think he was big on 
cold cuts. <laughs> yeah, and he was just a huge presence, just a, a physically a, a big guy. I remember seeing him walk down the street from the post office to the supermarket, just a big lumbering guy even in his old age i mean he, he would be hunched a little bit but still just yeah, he was hunched amazing. over i mean i'm six two and he, he, even him being walter being all hunched over was significantly taller than me you know and i'm and i'm six two and and then the other thing that was always just striking about walter is when you shook his hand yes like, you just felt like like walter's hand i felt like it almost had like like a like a structural like bone like <laughs> break like in the middle of it like there's an extra like yeah fold an extra fold yes it, it yes. was insane and you just shake your hand and it would just engulf your hand and then and then i'm sure i'm sure he did it to you mike where he just did the the hang on like just you shake his hand yes. and he would just hang on and not say a word not do anything <laughs> just hang on to your hand for what felt what felt feel like an eternity while you just sat there sweating bullets yes <laughs> and, and speaking of those hands i mean one of the greatest honors i'm sure of his life to him and definitely to me more so than training triple h and all these other things is the fact that he was referenced on seinfeld <laughs> yeah, yes kill a kowalski kowalski <laughs> <laughs> kill a kowalski in the stomach claw <laughs> so he used those big hands and it came up in an episode of our favorite show now i i asked him about that one oh, time really? yeah and he was like he was like vaguely aware of it like he was compl- and it's just i think this probably just speaks to the magnitude of like walter's life and and the type of star he was like he was like it was. It was just very matter of fact. Like he was like he was like uh, you know ac- acutely aware of it. Like he you know he was aware of it, but it wasn't like it didn't register on his like radar. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think. I don't think Walter was a big Seinfeld fan. No, I guess not. <laughs> but yeah, I mean to us, come on. Yeah. Referenced on Seinfeld. <laughs> Amazing. So did he ever tell you like personally how he got the nickname Killer? Um. No, I've never heard the story from actually from him. I've heard the story from all, all other sources, but never from from Walter. I heard plenty of other stories from Walter, but not that <laughs> one. Uh, so, of course, the story goes that he came off the top rope with a knee drop onto a foe by the name of Yukon Eric, and Yukon Eric had cauliflower ears. They're already kind of just not even functional. And uh, uh, some kind of uh, error happened. He hit his ear just right and knocked it off. So he knocked Yukon Eric's ear off with his knee. And how I remember it is he went to the hospital to apologize to Yukon Eric. And there were reporters there. And they reported that he went to the hospital to laugh (laughs) at Yukon Eric. Yes. Then later that night, he was... Uh, wrestling on a show, and the crowd was saying, "You're an animal. You're a killer." And Killer Kowalski stuck. Yeah, I mean, that, and if we have a second, we can tell so, a couple of these other sure. quick stories. I'm sure, and and anybody, um, you know, any of our friends who who spend any time with Walter will be very familiar with these stories. I'll tell my favorite one first, and then and then and then, but I'll tell the one that I think most people will will like better second. So you had talked about when he would go to Japan, and the first time he went to Japan, and they would test you, and they they put him out there, and they put him they put him in there with a sumo wrestler who was going to shoot on him and and like kind of humble him, and he 
kicked the shit out of him and was just like a wild man and like you know he gets to the back and like it, it's kind of a chaotic scene or whatever but he would, the the basis of the story was he would always tell his students who went to Japan to mention that they were trained by him because they know in Japan that you don't fuck with Kowalski. And that was always the fin- the big finish of the story. And I remember that uh, whenever someone would go to Japan, like uh, Perry Saturn would get booked in Japan, and Walter would always make sure to show the guys going to Japan some shoot moves, some things that they could do to protect themselves basically based on that story i would assume. yeah yeah i mean he, and he would still do that even when he was at the chaotic training center he would you know he would show guys shoot moves not because they were going to japan just because he liked to mess with people <laughs> i think yeah. so he'd like to see you know like handsome you know hansen you know or, or somebody like that tie up uh you know a young kid and <laughs> in, in some sort of <laughs> contraption uh you know and then the other the other one and I'm, and I'm sure he's i think i think this is walter's like stock story yeah like he would tell to like everybody uh and that's the the haystacks calhoun story right where like squeeze it and he's talking about squeezing his stomach put the claw on him and i'm squeezing i'm squeezing i'm squeezing i'm squeezing i'm squeezing and he cuts a fart and knocked me out <laughs> so yeah I, that, that, that's it i mean that's the whole story i mean you know the, the, this the thing that always sticks in my mind is the walter with the, and i'm squeezing and i'm squeezing and i'm squeezing and i'm squeezing you know and then yeah i that i mean i think i heard him tell that story if i had heard if i haven't heard that particular story a hundred times i i haven't heard it once now is this politically correct to talk about how to get out of a headlock when you're... No, it is not. <laughs> okay. Okay, I guess we'll leave that one be. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, Kowalski, I mean, we talked about the size of him and just the physical presence, but for a man his size, he was perpetual motion in the ring. He's like jumping and delivering those needs. I mean, we talked about on UConn Eric, he's coming off the top rope. A guy who's legit like six seven shouldn't be doing the kind of things that he did in the ring. No, and I think his conditioning too. Walter was legendary for his conditioning in the ring, and and he attributed that to his uh, vegetarian lifestyle. Mm-hmm. He he was somebody who I think you can easily say um, Walter was somebody who was probably way ahead of their time. He, he's somebody who, in any era, Walter would have made an enormous amount of money in in pro wrestling. He is somebody who um, I think I think when you look at the things he could do and and the way he could talk, that he transcends generations he's a guy who who would be a top guy in in any generation of pro wrestling i firmly believe that and a guy like Dijak today is kind of in the same vein as a kowalski like you know kowalski could fit right in with a guy like Dijak, who's a big tall guy you know legit six five or whatever he is and jumping off the ropes you talked about last week on the podcast in lowell his main event match he had with tomaso him doing moonsaults and flips and all this stuff that's kind of like you know what Kowalski was in the seventies, a guy who was huge who could do these things that he really shouldn't be doing in the ring. Yeah, yeah, and the people, I mean, and he was just so hated. It's it's, it's funny to we talk about Walter and and how lovable he was and and the good things he did, but so hated that he always loved telling stories of getting stabbed or they're getting stuff thrown at him. Or he talked about like an old lady stabbed him one time and. Just a, a a giant, giant of a man and a giant in the pro wrestling industry. And we'll talk about this with Sheldon, just the fact that he is a big name in New England, and we're kind of New England-centric on this podcast and talking about his role in New England wrestling, but he's a phenomenon across the world. I mean, he was one of Bruno San Martino's tippity-top opponents. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a guy who whose career as a main eventer spanned 
what, three decades? You know, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s? I mean, Walter was a main eventer everywhere he went. Like, he was, like, one of the top guys. And I, I believe he has, like, a – doesn't he have, like, a like a disputed – world heavyweight championship run like yeah. in texas or it, it's kind of like it's kind it's of muddy a, yeah, yeah it's not like officially recognized or something weird along it's outside those of the nwa or something like it's yeah, iwa i think is the yeah there's championship some, yeah some sort of weird thing like that but walter was always the guy that came in and was the foil for the top baby face in the in the territories that he came into and i was actually at kowalski's last match Really? Yeah. His last match was against, ironically, Nikolai Volkov. I'm not saying ironic. Joe? <laughs> yes. I'm not saying ironic because he just passed away. More so because he was also part of the Executioner's tag team. Well, he ended up being the third man in the Executioner's tag team where Kowalski and Big John Studd were the WWF tag team champions. So they have a history. So Kowalski's last match was in 1993 for the IWF. We're going to talk about the IWF, the International Wrestling Federation, that is Kowalski's Wait, promotion. His last match was in 1993? Yeah. I mean, he, he didn't wrestle for a while, and he came back and did this one last match, like a retirement match in 1993 for the IWF. I actually have the program at my parents' house, and I really want to dig this out. I saw it recently, so I want to go there and dig it out and probably – I'll take pictures of it and put it on at the WPA and on Twitter. But uh, the program from Kowalski's last show, it was, yeah, 1993. And I, I was there. I was there for history. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Yeah. So we'll definitely put that up on our uh, Twitter. And we want your feedback. So follow us on Twitter at the WPAN with your take on this week's episode, your thoughts on the late, great Walter Killer Kowalski. Use the hashtag WPAN so you can interact with us. And plus, you can call the voicemail line, 401-584-9726. That's 401-584-WPAN. Get your voice in this podcast. Share your thoughts on Killer Kowalski or anything else in the world of professional wrestling, 401-584-9726. Also, why to check out Booking the Territory, the unprofessional wrestling podcast with Mike Mills, Hard Buddy Harper, Doc Turner. Twice a week on Sundays and Thursdays, they put out new episodes. They talk about Smoky Mountain Wrestling. They talk about the old NWA Saturday Night 605 show. All there on Booking the Territory on that one feed. Check out MikeMills.Podbean.com for more on Booking the Territory. And if you want the northern version of the Southern Booking the Territory podcast, it is our vantage point, the retro wrestling podcast. Podcast. Joe Morata and Michael Quinn helm that show, and they do 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 do. They do <laughs> Mount Rushmore and Death Valley. They're very good at it. So check out ovppodcast.com for all of the old school wrestling goodness there on our vantage point. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Will you stop? Also, <laughs> greetings from Allentown with PW, Peter Winson. He talks about a single episode of wrestling television each every week and uh, adds in his own personal feelings, anecdotes, and thoughts about college and his cats. Okay, then. All right, so check out Gritty's from Allentown. It's much better than I make it sound. <laughs> so check out the <laughs> podcast there on his feet or the Pro Wrestling Only feed 
on Place to Be Nation and the Rundown Wrestling Podcast. Jason Stewart, Adam Sauls are all the rest over there at the Rundown Wrestling Podcast feed. So much stuff going on there. So check it all out. Make sure to subscribe. And uh, Brian, we are being joined by a man who has studied the wrestling business for many years and can help us get a better understanding of Walter Kowalski's place in New England wrestling history and history in general. He's the man behind New England Championship Wrestling and a noted wrestling historian, Sheldon Goldberg. Hello, sir. How are you guys? Doing very well. Doing great here. Nice to have you on, Sheldon. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it, especially given the subject that we're going to talk about. I really appreciate the invitation. And uh, coming from two guys that I think very highly of, it's uh, most appreciated. Thanks very much, Sheldon. We feel the same way about you. Yeah, it's been like... 10 years, we've been talking about it here on the podcast since Walter Kowalski passed away, and we were just talking before we went on the air, the fact that Kowalski settled here, we kind of consider him one of us, he was kind of big in this area, of course, but it might be hard for people to understand just how big he was in the greater scope of wrestling. Can you kind of tell us how big he was worldwide? Well, Walter's career went back to 1948, that's when he broke in, he was trained by Lou Fez. He came up in the early days of uh, what people sometimes call the golden age of wrestling, which is the, the TV era of the late 40s uh, through the end of the 50s. Uh, that was a time in America when television was new. There were four or five channels, and wrestling was on at least one or two of them. And Killer Kowalski was a household name. In fact, what a lot of guys don't know at least who were trained by him later on in later years, is that back in those days, he was one of the most famous people in America. Pro wrestlers, whether it was uh, Kowalski or Buddy Rogers or Lou Fez or Gorgeous George, these, these men were some of the most famous athletes in America, more famous in many cases than the top baseball players or football players or basketball players of the day. So back in those days, you got to remember, back in those days, Major League sports didn't pay especially well. Pro wrestling paid far better than than most Major League sports. That's why many football players wrestled in the offseason, because they could make more money wrestling than they could playing for the NFL. <laughs> um, it's the truth. You know, if you were an NFL player back in the 60s, the late 50s, early 60s, what would you make? 10000 12000 15000 I mean, Lou Thez once said, hey, even if you were a terrible wrestler, you'd make a lot more money than that. You could be the worst guy in the ring and make, make a lot more money than a pro football player. That's what was so attractive about pro wrestling to athletes from other sports back in those days. You know, they sold out arenas all over the country and, in fact, all over the world. So, you know, I, I think a lot of times most guys who maybe were trained by Walter in his years post-active wrestling didn't really realize that they were next to someone who was one of the all-time legends in pro wrestling. I mean, he was really, you know, when, when you hung around him, you were breathing rarefied air, whether you knew it or not. So Kowalski left the WWF in 1977. And I mean, he opened up the school here in Massachusetts. Do you know why Walter ended up settling here in Massachusetts? He got booked in Boston a lot. He was very friendly with a man by the name of Abe Ford. Mm. If you're a little older, you might remember Abe Ford as the guy who was the promoter of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in Boston from the mid to late 60s through the early 70s. 
the story of, of Walter in his later years and the story of Abe Ford kind of intersect quite a bit. I had met Walter a few times back in those days, but I didn't really get to know him until the 90s. But I did know Abe Ford because before I got involved in wrestling, I was involved in the theater business. And Abe Ford, apart from being a wrestling promoter, was a theatrical agent. And his office was in the theater district. His office was in the old Steinert Piano Building, which was just a few doors down from the Colonial Theater. Working in the theater district myself, I used to see him all the time and got to know him fairly well. And he and Walter were quite close. In fact, the later post-wrestling history of Kowalski has a lot to do with Abe Ford. Abe Ford was the one that helped him get on television in 82 with Bedlam from Boston. Abe had a very bitter falling out with Vince McMahon Sr. They were not seeing eye to eye on things. And at one point, Abe Ford had gone up to Montreal to talk to the owners of Grand Prix Wrestling about bringing Grand Prix into New England. Because they were already running Vermont and parts of northern New England that uh, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation wasn't covering it. So the office, the, the New York office, got wind of that and they kicked Abe out. There was a lawsuit that ensued. Abe won the lawsuit, and McMahon had to buy him out. And there was a lot of bitterness about that. And, and after that, Abe kind of lost his taste for wrestling, but he didn't. He, he yeah. helped Walter quite a bit. And when Walter started promoting and doing his own shows, Abe helped him get fair shows. Abe helped him connect with telemarketers to get telemarketed shows. So Abe became very important to Walter later in his life. And I really want to talk about him promoting shows and stuff like that, uh, and Bedlam from Boston especially, because there's not really a lot known about that, especially to you know, our audience. So I, I want to get back to that. But Kowalski's first uh, notable trainee was Big John Studd, and he won the WWF Tag Team Championships with Big John Studd, Kowalski did. Now, was there a school at the time when he trained Big John Studd? Do you know that? After he got out, he did have a school. He was the first one to have a school that got any sort of major publicity. Right. Back then, you know, if you wanted to be a wrestler, you had to know somebody or be recruited by somebody who was a wrestler. Or, you know, there were a few places that had camps. It was the old thing. If you uh, wanted to be a wrestler in Florida, you went to Eddie Graham and, you know, he'd have Hero Matsuda stretch you and kill you or close to it and if you came back the next day then they, they train you so you know they really protected the business in a major way back then but walter was the first guy to kind of like openly advertise and say hey if you want to be a wrestler come and see me that was something that it was very very rare at that time and it got a lot of, of mixed response from people in the industry some people thought oh this is terrible he's just letting anybody in off the street but he ended up training a lot of good guys so uh and he ended up doing uh, pretty well with it for a long time. And the school was in, well, I don't know, Was did it start in Malden, Massachusetts, or was it somewhere else before that? No, no. I, I believe it started in, at one point, it was in the uh, Boston YMC Union on Boylston Street. Okay. It was in different places. He didn't connect with Richard Byrne until a little bit later. Richard Byrne owned the karate studio in Malden, where the school eventually moved into and right. that was where it had its longest run. And that's where, you know, me and 
Brian both know. And Brian, you went there numerous times. Yeah, I mean, I'm just you know, it's funny we you talked about the magnitude uh, of Walter beyond the scope of New England, and I just remember the the first time I wasn't even training at the time. I was just a, a kid in high school, and I went with my buddy who was training, but I knew of Killer Kowalski from. My father, who was a child in the in the fifties, he was born in nineteen forty seven. So he was, you know, wide eyed kid in that era. And I remember when my father, as a grown man now, you know, came to a show and met Walter. He was absolutely in awe and completely starstruck by by meeting this guy who he watched as a child, you know, be one of the biggest stars in the world. So, you know, incredible. Your your dad's generation remembers him that way that I described earlier about being one of the most well-known names as far as an athlete goes in America back in those days. Now, my parents didn't know much about wrestling, but they sure as hell knew who Killer Kowalski was. He had one of those names that was kind of synonymous with professional wrestling. And long after he was an active wrestler, he was a famous man. People far and wide knew Killer Kowalski. When he was in retirement, he did a uh, he did David Letterman. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was a guy who was very, very well known. And like I said, the the school was an interesting thing because, like I say, back in those days, back in the early days, wrestling schools, I mean, you had to know somebody. It was not so easy to get in to pro wrestling back then. And, uh, you know, Walter, when he retired, he, he sold insurance for a while as well as, <laughs> as running the school. You know, he was also a very talented photographer. Yeah, he put out a book at one point. He did, yeah, yeah, a coffee table book. Yeah, and he was, a, he was a talented guy. But, you know, by the time you and I got to be around him, that killer Kowalski was kind of a, a relic at that point, you know? You know, the right. world had changed, the business had changed by the 80s. You know, Walter was... Um, I don't want to say this in a negative way because it's not a negative. In, in some respects, he was out of step with what wrestling had become and so forth. He was still a great trainer and a, a great human being. You, know, you talk to guys who he trained, and the ones that really got to know him would tell you what a profound influence he was on their lives. I mean, he was a spiritual guy. He was a deep thinker. He was somebody who really was really a, a fine and wonderful human being. A very kind man. I think a lot of people, you know, if you just looked at him on the surface, you might not have thought that, but he was just a, a, a wonderful, a great human being. He's very kind to me. No, I had no designs on being a wrestling promoter before I got started in all of this, but he was very kind to me and very encouraging and uh, very welcoming, and he didn't have to be. He was that way with a lot of people. And you talked about the people that you know were trained by him and stuff like that. I, I, I say this on the podcast uh, quite a bit that you can trace just about anyone in wrestling in New England today back to Killer Kowalski. It's like you know six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatnot. Anyone who is trained today can go back and you find you know it all originated with Kowalski. He was like the the nucleus of everything going on in New England wrestling. Absolutely. Ab you hit the nail right on the head. I was just going to say six degrees of separation, which is the truth. You know, you were trained by Kowalski or a guy who was trained by Kowalski or a guy who was trained by a guy who was trained by Kowalski. It's, it, it, it still continues today. So you know, he had a very lasting impact on pro wrestling in New England and, and elsewhere as well. 
So let's talk about the International Wrestling Federation, the promotion that he started, I think, in 1979. You said yourself that him and Abe Ford were kind of the brains behind the operation there. I mean, how many, everyone knows about, you know, independent promotions all over the place these days. How many independent promotions like this were around in 1979? Oh, there weren't any. Walter was it. It was either that or spot shows that were run by the WWWF office where I think Tony Santos might have still been around at that point. He was running shows uh, in the area. But, uh, you know, wrestling, the spot show was something that the major office at the time would, would still be heavily involved in. And eventually, Walter was the guy that ran the spot shows for Vince Sr. It would be a couple of names from TV and then the rest of the show would be his students. And it would, would it be a very economical thing to bring to a local high school or to a, a town that, that had a, a good size auditorium but didn't see wrestling very much, whether it was Fitchburg or uh, Lemonster or you know, places in the outer reaches. You know, we're just far enough away from the big cities that you know, if wrestling came to that town and there was a couple of guys from TV on the card, people would flock there. And, and just Walter, when World Wrestling Federation under Vincent Kennedy McMahon got out of the spot show business, that's when uh, Walter really kind of started to take off because he had a ton of shows. The TV did not work out well for him. The TV, Bedlam from Boston was on in 1982, and it didn't last very long. He got a lot of heat from Vince Sr. over the TV. They thought it was kind of a threat to what they were doing. I don't think that's why it went off the air. Abe Ford was the one who was instrumental in getting Walter on TV in the first place. It didn't last very long. I've heard a couple of stories as to why. The show was shot out of what were, at the time, Channel 25 Studios in, at the time, Needham, Massachusetts. Doing a studio wrestling show back then, Boston had another show called Bedlam from Boston that was a studio television show in the last days of Paul Bowser, who was the big promoter in New England prior to Abe Ford and from the basically the 30s up until Bowser died in 1960. And after Bowser died, the TV disappeared and Santos took over for a while. It was kind of a mishmash until Abe Ford got the tapes from Vince McMahon Sr. and started running the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in the late 60s. But um, the TV for Walter really didn't work out that well. And there's so little footage out there available. You can barely find anything or even really much mention of it online. Right. I remember watching it. It was on uh, Sundays at noon or Sundays at 11 on Channel 25. Uh, the guy who was the local announcer, the booth announcer locally, he did the commentary. It was a simple show. It wasn't, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of production values. It was notable because of some of the guys that appeared on it, like, uh, it was really the last run of the late great Wild Bull Curry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dominic DiNucci would appear on that every now and then. David Sammartino was on that show for a bit. But mostly it was Kowalski students. Richard Byrne and uh, Dan Petty and uh, Tony Ulysses and people like that. That was uh, didn't last very long, unfortunately. You know, it had its moment, but Walter could just continue to run sold shows and that was the thing you know by the time that the 80s came around walter wasn't really taking a risk in promoting shows so much he was just doing all these shows on a guarantee 
And there was nobody else in New England doing it. He had the market all to himself. It wasn't until Eugenio started running. And then, of course, Richard Byrne ran his own shows, but they were with Walter's Blessing. And then Tony Rumble came along. But Walter pretty much, you know, his name still carried a lot of weight with a lot of people. So he was able to get these shows. But the Kowalski style of promoting wasn't really promoting at all. He was basically selling these shows to a group or an organization and uh, I don't know if you're aware of how telemarketed shows work, but just for the sake of this conversation, I'll give you a, a quick overview. Yeah, please. Telemarketed shows were actually promoted by professional fundraisers, and they would have a contract with, say, the local police association, the local fire department. And what they would do is they'd have a basically a boiler room someplace, and they would take a contract with the police association, and they uh, so if it was say the Westfield Fire Association, they would sit in a boiler room. They call everybody in the town of Westfield and say, we're having a wrestling show. If you want to donate to the police, you get tickets to the show. If you want to uh, buy an ad in the program book, we'll give you 10 tickets or we'll, uh, you're supporting the police, but we're having a, the wrestling show is the vehicle for raising the money. And the shows were paid on a flat fee. So, you know, Kowalski might make 5000 6000 8000 whatever it was. He would uh, have a profit for himself, pay everybody, and uh, that was that. Many of these shows would be annual affairs, so he'd go back to the same towns once a year, but he wasn't really, like, promoting a monthly card. There weren't angles. There weren't programs. It were just spot shows. That was what his promotion, and I use that term with, quotes around it. Not that it was, it was a bad thing. It wasn't a bad thing at all. But, you know, he didn't have television. There was no, uh, he wasn't running any town on a monthly basis. So it was a safe way of doing business and it paid pretty well. So that kind of continued in, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, other people started picking up on that. So Eugenio started running and cut into his stuff and Richard Byrne, of course, as I mentioned before, and then Tony Rumble came along. But in the case of Rumble and in the case of Richard Byrne, they all had good relationships with Kowalski. Don't forget, by this time, Walter's a senior citizen. He doesn't have the motivation to go out and conquer the world, you know, like these other guys. He wasn't so much out trying to hustle a buck as he was just trying to run his school, have a place for his students to perform, and he'd get them booked here and there. He'd get them booked on TV. He'd send guys to Japan. He'd send guys to different places. So, you know, he had a, a good little thing going. He enjoyed it. He was able to continue to be in the business long after his active years as a wrestler had been done. And as I say, he was one of the most famous names ever. So it was a way for him to capitalize on that fame, you know, past his years of being able to do anything in the ring. Yeah, I first found out about independent wrestling by... Um going to a Kowalski show. I actually found out about it from the Boston Herald. There used to be a wrestling column, and I would... Uh, he did it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I would find out about these shows. I mean, I you know watched WWF, but didn't know about the independent wrestling, so we went and saw a show, and like you said, it'd always be his students underneath, uh, guys like Perry Saturn, Chris Duffy, who's uh, a fantastic talent, is no longer with us, Tony Roy, uh guys like that, Tim McNeeny. But the main events were always uh, established stars like, you know, your King Kong Bundys, Jimmy Snookas, Nikolai Volkov. And the main event was usually refereed by Walter. So, you know, you saw Kowalski yeah. in the main mm -hmm. event as mm -hmm. well. 
these shows went on. I, I went in 92 to my first one, and these shows went on through the 90s, and it, it all kind of dried up. Can you tell us why these telemarketed shows, these sold shows, just kind of started to go away? Yeah, it was the Attitude Era more than anything else. Yeah. When the Attitude Era came along, now all of a sudden, every kid's going to school doing the crotch chop and telling their teacher to suck it. And, <laughs> you know, Steve Austin is giving everybody the finger, so every kid in the school is giving their teacher the finger and whatnot. And so schools, which are where most of these shows took place, started to say, well, you know what? When we have a fundraiser here next year, we're not going to have wrestling. We, we don't want that here anymore. We're going to book a band or we're going to have a comedy night or we're going to have a dance or do something else. We're going to do something else with these telemarketers instead of a wrestling show because we don't want that here anymore. And so all of that started to dry up. And uh, that's really when you started to see, you know, after Tony passed away, I started to promote and Chaotic came along and so forth. That's when independent wrestling as you and I and most people around would refer to it. That's really when that was born. And it was because of that. The Attitude Era kind of dried everything up. Now, you talked about how um, Rumble and Kowalski were on the same page. I seem to recall that there was like some heat at some point. It did get cleared up eventually, and uh, obviously before Tony passed away. But yes, what was the heat there? Do you know what you know? Kowalski ended up appearing on Tony Rumble's shows, but there was a point where Kowalski guys couldn't go and work on Tony Rumble's shows. He did the same thing with Eugenio. Said the same thing to guys who worked for Eugenio. Yeah. I remember uh, Hunter Triple H worked for Eugenio one time, and Walter told him never again. You know, Walter believed that New England was his territory, but as he got older and he's, as he got less able, he sort of softened on that. A lot of those guys really, you know, Rumble really respected him. He was such a likable human being. Rumble never had any personal issue with him. Just the fact that he was doing what he was doing. You know, you got to remember, Kowalski grew up in the era where, you know, if you were in the office, that was your place and nobody else ran there. You know, that was the mentality that he came up with. Whereas other people started doing things, the times were starting to change. And those guys showed him respect. And once they did that, then his attitude towards them softened. And he let students work because he wanted his guys to work. And the sold shows were drying up. You know, they had to work. They, You know, you, it's one thing to train in a gym. It's another thing to perform in front of a, a paying audience. And he needed to perpetuate that just to keep things going. I mean, he was very reluctant to get involved with Chaotic. And you guys were around then or may not have been around right at that moment, but you were around there shortly thereafter. I mean, he was very, very reluctant to do that. And it was Mike Hollow going and making a deal with Chaotic and Walter. In the end, he had to follow because he just couldn't handle it on his own without Mike. So, um, you know, he Walter has a special place in, in New England wrestling. He was a, a revered man by everyone who knew him. Uh, I don't know of anyone who ever said he's a terrible person or he's a rotten guy. I had never heard anybody in the industry say a cross word about him. He's one of the few people that you can say that about. I remember uh, I had a buddy who, it's kind of was my introduction to like independent wrestling and then ultimately training, but um, I had a friend who was training with Walter and, and did, a, did a number of shows, but all, I remember, and this was like the mid-90s, and all of his bookings, 
went through Walter and Mike Hollow. Like, so it was kind of funny how even like Walter, uh, you know, and it's very different now, I feel, with students in, in regards to their schools. But in the mid 90s, even at that point, any bookings for his students would, would filter through him and, and, and Mike, who was his head trainer at the time. Right, right. It was a respect thing. You know, you worked on Walter's shows, you got a pretty decent payday until he got into tax trouble. <laughs> Well, he did. He uh, This was around uh, mid to late 90s, and it was Freddie Sparta who bailed him out. Pat Patterson said, why are you paying these guys so much money? You, know, you should be keeping more of that money for yourselves. So, you know, the paydays changed and so forth. So, But, yeah, I mean, it was a respect thing. You didn't want to cross Walter. If you worked for somebody other than him in this area, if he let you work after that, he cut your pay. And I remember, yeah, the payday. Uh, I mean, I had friends that started uh, with Kowalski and started on IWF shows. It was a hundred bucks right off the bat, and that's, I mean, unheard of to start at a hundred bucks in, especially in you know when we came up and in, even in, up to this day and age. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, Mike, but nowadays for me, you know, <laughs> yeah, but you're not a, you're not a. You're not a beginner, and you're worth all that money, so, and then some. <laughs> well, there I said it. Well, Sheldon, if NECW, you know, when you start, when NECW comes back, uh, we might have something to talk about. I might hold you to that. <laughs> I, you could be, ha- I would be happy to have you hold me to that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, Walter's legacy, Sheldon, would you say even more than his in ring career, uh, you know, as fantastic as it was? His wrestling school and his students are even more the legacy of Walter Killer Kowalski. Absolutely. Think about this. Here's a guy who really opened wrestling up to people that it had never been opened up to before. By having the first school that really got a, a wide degree of publicity, almost every year there was always a big story in a newspaper about Kowalski's wrestling school or the Globe or the Herald. Back when they had Evening Magazine on Channel 4 or Chronicle on Channel 5, every couple of years they'd do a story about Killer Kowalski's wrestling school. And here is this great legend who's now training the stars of tomorrow and all that. He brought a lot of people into wrestling, not just wrestlers, but promoters, people like myself. He was so open with people, almost to a fault. And his legacy is just the generation that he brought into wrestling that hadn't been involved in it before. There wouldn't have been a Joe Eugenio without Walter Kowalski. There wouldn't have been a Tony Rumble. There wouldn't have been a Sheldon Goldberg. There wouldn't have been a Chaotic Wrestling. There wouldn't have been none of us. If you think about it, none of us would would, would be, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if it wasn't for him. He has such a legacy that goes so deeply. Even now, every time I see Eddie Edwards on Impact, and I think about Kowalski. I think about, you know, how he was a product of that school. Wagner Brown is still still wrestling and, and has his own school and is passing that on. So he had such a deep influence on everything and everyone. I think that uh, we don't really stop and think about that. Yeah, and not to mention a guy by the name of Terrorizing, who is going to be running eventually a billion-dollar company, the biggest wrestling company in the world, you know, that wouldn't be happening without a guy like Walter Kowalski. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember having a conversation. I was doing a radio show a number of years ago, and 
we did a special about Walter right right after he passed. And one of the people that we had on was Frankie Kazarian, who was also a yep. Kowalski trainee. And he talked about what a big influence on his life Walter was. And we took him in and helped him. What a profound influence on his life he was. So he was that way for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, you don't find many human beings that come along in our lives like that who are so unselfish and so giving. You know, the fruits of, of that giving are, are still being born this day by the people who, whose lives he touched. Yeah, it's just uh, amazing, and it's great to have you here, Sheldon, to talk about this on the anniversary of uh, Walter's passing, the 10-year anniversary of the passing of uh, Walter Killer Kowalski. And Sheldon, I understand that uh, you're getting back in the game. Is this true? NECW is coming back? Yes, October 13th in Milton, Massachusetts. We're doing a show to benefit the Milton Parks and Recreation Department Special Needs Program. More details on that very shortly, but it's Saturday night, October 13th in Milton. It's for a great cause. I hope people come out to support it, and there'll be more NECW in the in the not-so-distant future, maybe even featuring Brian Malonis. Ooh. <laughs> hey, I'd be honored. I, I was, you know, I was happy to be a part of New England Championship Wrestling in the past. I remember going to some of your shows when I was still a, a younger chap before I got into wrestling. And, you know, you've been, you've certainly been a staple in the, you know, in the New England area and a credit to the New England area. And one of the guys who have, you know, I mean, give yourself some credit, Sheldon. Uh, you see all these guys from this area who have gone on to bigger and better things. And, Every single one of them, uh, at some point or another, had an opportunity in New England Championship Wrestling. So, uh, you know, uh, for me personally, and I'm sure I can speak for a whole host of other guys, you know, we're really appreciative of the of the platform that you've helped provide for quite some time now. Well, thank you for that. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. One of the things that I wanted to accomplish with NECW is precisely that, to give people an opportunity to realize their dream and to do something that they have passion for. And, uh, you know, even some of the guys who may not have hit the big time or whatever, I was always very grateful for everyone who stepped in a ring on a show that I promoted. And uh, I was uh, telling you guys before when we were off the air that last year, last Columbus Day weekend, I uh, broke my right shoulder in five places in a fall and uh, was on the shelf for quite a while. So I'm just now getting my life back to normal and getting back to wrestling, and I didn't realize you know, how, much I, uh, how much I missed it and how much I missed not being in the thick of it uh, until I was just sitting at home twiddling my thumbs. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into action, and I'm just uh, grateful for having the opportunity to have done this for so long. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the scene in New England. And NECW.TV is the website, right? That's correct, yes. All right, so Sheldon, thanks so much for being with us here today on the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my uh, thoughts about Walton. All right, really glad we get to talk to uh, Sheldon Goldberg about Killer Kowalski. He's got a lot of knowledge about the history of wrestling. And uh, I think we want to continue this trend into next week. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about Killer Kowalski's influence on New England. I really want to talk to guys that were there, that were in the trenches with Walter at the old Institute of Professional Wrestling in Malden, Massachusetts. Hopefully we can line something up. I really want to do that for next week on the podcast to kind of close this out. Hopefully we can get the designated hitter. 
<laughs> Here's hoping, Bruce. Give us a give us a message, and we'll see what we can work out. All right, Kingpin. It is time for this week's promo about nothing. But before we get into that, you are hitting the highways and byways, crisscrossing this great nation of ours, plying your trade as a professional wrestler, and you got dates like nobody's business. <laughs> I do. I'll this weekend, Mike, three nights I'll be heading to Easton, Pennsylvania. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. It's Chikara's King of Trios. I'll be teaming with the Dirty Daddy Chris Dickinson and Cam Zagami to Camp to give a damn. Man, you can really stick it to Cody and the Young Bucks in a couple ways these next uh, couple weeks. Yeah, oh yeah, we're going to defeat them. I, I don't I, I don't know how we would defeat them, but the shows are thousands of miles no, I'm apart. Saying, I'm saying you'll take their six-man tag team titles, and then you will snub them and go do this. I, I wouldn't take the booking if they offered it to me. At this wow. Point. Yeah, I'm booked for Chikara. Jesus. I'm all in for Chikara. There you go. <laughs> no, I am excited to make my Chikara debut, though. One of the preeminent uh, independent promotions for quite some time now, so it's always cool to debut in a in a new place and uh, you know take part in their, their biggest events, three nights of craziness so oh, yeah. uh come out and see me there and then uh the following weekend september the 8th saturday night i'll be returning to bethany connecticut for northeast wrestling that's right northeast wrestling in bethany connecticut find northeast wrestling on all over social media and on northeastwrestling.com for ticket and card information then on september the 13th a thursday night oh again yes i'll be returning to chaotic wrestling Whoa! In Uber in Massachusetts, my uh, old home promotion, where I got my start. It's always good to come back to Chaotic Wrestling. I don't quite get there as much as uh, I used to, but it's always good to be back. Uh, go to chaoticwrestling.com for full ticket and car information. Then on the 15th, I'm returning to Liberty States Wrestling. I haven't been there in a couple of years. So, my goodness. Uh, that's in PBD, Massachusetts, right down the street from the Kowloon. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, find Liberty States Wrestling on all your social media platforms for ticket and full card information. Then on Sunday, the 16th of September, I'll be heading to East Greenwich, Rhode Island, not, not Connecticut, uh, for Beyond Wrestling at the Varnum Memorial Armory beyondwrestlingonline.com and across all social media platforms for ticket and card information. The week after that, uh, probably have to take it off. It's the old anniversary, so, mm. you know, I, I don't need any more heat. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a hot property. Of course I am, Mike. I'm a big-time wrestling, wrestling superstar. You don't appreciate me. Uh, you, you snicker and sneer at me, and uh, you know what? I'm going to take that title, uh, that, that, that Ring of Honor six-man title, you know, uh, if, if uh, you know, the things go our way, and I'm going to come shove it right in your face. Wow. Right in your fat face. I w- <laughs> <laughs> How long are you waiting to do that? (laughs) If you win that six-man title, I will polish it right here on the podcast. Okay. All right? I can't wait. All right. It is promo about nothing time. The year, 1998. And it is WCW World Championship Wrestling. WCW? WCW. And let's take a listen to this promo backstage with the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith. It's the promo about nothing. Welcome, fans, backstage at the Carolina Coliseum, only on DirecTV, backstage Nitro Blast with the British Bulldog. And 
Just a few weeks ago, of course, uh, Alex Wright comes out pretty much out of nowhere and issues this challenge, claiming to be the finest European wrestler. Of course, you have many years of experience on him. What went through your mind as you even saw that go down? I saw it, but I don't believe it. The British Bulldog has been in wrestling for 20 years, since I was 15 years old. Alex Wright, you think you can beat the British Bulldog? You're wrong. If you want a chance of me, come on and take a piece of me. Well, let me ask you, I mean, you're from Great Britain, he's from Germany. Is there inherently a different style of wrestling? Uh, is there something that you think uh, you do that definitely has an advantage over his style? Well, I can do the American style, I can do the Mexican style, I can do the strongman style, and I can do the German style. I can do any style of wrestling. That's why you call me the British Bulldog. You would seem to have a power advantage. Oh, oh greatly power advantage. I'm going to snap him in half when we get the chance. Jetzt hör mir mal zu und du hörst mir besser genau zu. Ich bin der beste europäische Ringer. Halt deine Klappe und ich werde sie dir stopfen, dass du es weißt. You get me? When you speak to me, speak in English. I don't speak German. Okay? Let's go back to Lee and chat on the internet. Well, yeah. <laughs> How about that? Speaking of fat faces there. Oh, my God. The bulldog. The bulldog. Yeah, this looking is... a little, uh, looking like the kingpin there. <laughs> <laughs> this is late in the game for Davy Boy Smith. Uh, let's give you a little background before we get into and dissecting the promo itself. This was a part of the project called Nitro Backstage Blast. It was for DirecTV only. You paid like four or five bucks each episode of WCW Monday Nitro. And instead of commercials, you'd get to see the matches during the commercial breaks and backstage segments like this. Hmm. Plus, you get Lee Marshall on commentary, so you, you, know, you really can't go wrong there. <laughs> and then the WWE app would do this like 15 years later and claim it was innovative. <laughs> Basically. Well, you know. The uh, the winners get the right history, Mike. They certainly do. <laughs> so, yeah, British Bulldog had a tough time with this one. He really did. He really got tongue-tied and, like, uh, we've all been there. Well, you, I mean, you're not a promo. You don't cut promos or anything. But everybody who's ever cut a promo has been where the Bulldog is in that moment. And, unfortunately for him, it was on live TV. Well, it was just on direct TV. It's probably like 30 people seeing it. <laughs> but he, yeah, he says, uh, you know, I've been doing this since I was 15 years. And you see, I think he was going to say of age, 15 years of age. But then he was like, oh, that's too British. I got to relate to like the American audience. So he's like 15 years old. He's like stuttering John. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. From, from Howard Stern. <laughs> oh, big fan. Big fan. Big fan. Uh, so and he also said this. I could do the American style. I could do the Mexican style. I could do the strongman style. I guess a precursor to strong style. And I could do the German style. Any style of wrestling. That's why they call me the British Bulldog. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what you'd call him, but why would you call him the British Bulldog if he can do all these? Because he can't do the British style of wrestling. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex Wright comes up and speaks German. Bulldog says to speak English. And for some reason, this causes Alex Wright to throw his hands up, like beg off, like, 
speak English. And he's like, whoa, big wide <laughs> eyes, like he's being threatened. Speak but, American. <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, this whole thing, unscripted, bad promo by the Bulldog, but I would say terrible questions as well by the interviewer, uh, Jimmy Barron. Yeah, who in is this, this case. Squeak? I think he was a, a radio guy who was just hired for this backstage blast thing and yeah like asking how is your style compliment like just a boring question you know if all the everybody bitches about the scripted nature of promos and uh well take a look take a listen this is why (laughs) exactly (laughs) and then the interviewer jimmy Barron, there has no idea what to do after the fight breaks out. Call Dillinger! <laughs> call Dillinger! <laughs> he goes, shit, somebody call security! <laughs> I guess they could swear on direct TV, so he threw in a shit. And he has the microphone kind of knocked out of his hand, and he, he like almost gets in the middle of the fray to go and pick this microphone up. He almost got his hand stomped on because they're you know they're throwing lefts and rights. Probably coming out of his paycheck. <laughs> Probably. It's kind of like a security blanket, the microphone. He has to have it. But he remains like through the end of the promo, uncomfortably close to the action. And you've talked about before, like you have a referee who is too close to you in the ring. It kind of throws you off. This is like an interviewer who is just right next to them, holding the microphone. He re- eventually, you know, closes out the thing and sends it back to Lee Marshall and some yeah, well, weird guy. They leave, it, they leave it in the middle of a brawl. Yeah, but but just the uncomfortable... This guy just had... You, you could tell he was inexperienced. He had bad questions, and he had no idea what to do once the fight broke out. Well, WCW. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to close it, Brian. (laughs) WCW. You heard this promo about nothing. If you want the full picture, find the link to the video in the description of this episode or at thewpan.com. All right, Brian, we will be back right here next Monday for episode 124 of the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing. Till then, he is the Kingpin Brian Malonis. I am Mike Crockett. Big ups to Mucko, and thanks for nothing.